Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Tim Miller in for Charlie J. Sykes. Uh, it's good to be with you all today. Before we get to our guest, uh, Perry Bacon Jr., who I'm so excited to have back, just wanted to point you guys to a couple of things. We do have, for the new year, a promotion for the Bulwark Plus if you want to support our efforts, uh, if you want to get the Next Level podcast, the secret podcast where Charlie and Mona you know, share all of their private anxieties and fight about dogs and cats, and uh, the other secret podcast with Sarah and JVL, a lot of additional bulwark material. You could support our efforts to try to save our little democracy here in the new year. We'd greatly appreciate it. You just go to thebulwark.com slash secret. You get a one-month trial, thebulwark.com slash secret. I hope you enjoy what you have there and we can get more of your more of your fa- more of your ear time. Not really FaceTime, I guess, the uh, at the bulwark. The other thing I just want to mention before I bring in Perry is we had a great chat last April that I think is going to kind of underpin a lot of the things that we talk about today. Uh, so if you didn't hear that, uh, you can just search Perry Bacon and Tim Miller on on Google. It pops right up. And you know, go back and revisit our April podcast where we get into some of these deeper questions about you know the sort of racial awakening in our country and what is happening in our politics. And uh, this week on Friday, you guys are around teens during the holidays, so please point your teens to Not My Party. We have a New Year's not my party episode, which is going to, you know, maybe scare you a little bit and awaken you and increase your blood pressure as you head into the new year, which is exactly what you need. And so before we get to Perry Bacon, first, my friends at Acetone. You know, if you guys miss rock music, my buddies at Acid Tongue are so good. Please go check them out. No no new guitar bands come out anymore, and they're just doing great stuff out there in Seattle. You know, bring a little bit of uh, guitar solo into your life. And today I'm going to bring Perry into your life. Perry is a columnist for the Washington Post and was previously at 538 fantastic journalist long career before that and has kind of got to move more into the opinion and take space which i'm really happy about um uh so you know he can let his freak bike fly a little bit more when he comes on with us and i I think by that list of 10 you get a good sense of of who perry is but perry thank you so much for coming back on a holiday week and hanging out with me well good to be here tim thanks for having me um how are things how's christmas yeah, like I, I was telling you offline, we got here. It was seventy degrees in Louisville. I know that climate change is a real issue, and I don't want to suggest it's not a problem. But for this one day, it was very nice. It was so you know so sunny and so nice and so perfect. Everybody has some mixed feelings about that, right? It's like, can you really enjoy it? Can we have these pure joys in our life these days? I. Uh... I was in West Virginia, in the hills of West Virginia, usually snow. It was very temperate and then popped down to New Orleans where I was shirtless by the pool. So, you know, it was very, uh, very unusual Christmas in that regard. It was very pleasant. But yeah, you do have that little nagging Jiminy Cricket in your head going, is this, am I enjoying this because the end is nigh? Um, uh, Before we get to what I told you we're going to talk about, you have an article out today that is positive. And, you know, every, we all get so negative around here sometimes. And so you, your article out today is about 10 nice things that happened in our politics in, in 2021. And we're kind of mind-melding on this because I'm working on something for the new year as well that is 
you know, trying to combat just this general ennui and negativity that that I feel in the content that people are consuming these days. So, you know, just before we get down into the darkness, start us off with a little cheer. What should, what should we be happy about? So I listed 10 things and I just pulled them up here now. So I mentioned vaccines. I think that's obvious. Ossoff and Warnock winning in Georgia. To me, it wasn't just that that gave the Democrats the majority. I leaned toward the Democrats, but it was also that the people who won, Warnock, the the black, the pastor from the, uh, from Ebenezer, the church, Martin Luther King Jr. once ran. And also Ossoff had a, had a career, he's younger, had worked in civil rights issues, worked for John Lewis, worked for Hank Johnson. The fact that those two people with their bios, this was not just sort of generic person who's a, you know, older white guy who says they're a Democrat, but who, it's, it's not, it wasn't like I mean, electing a Joe Manchin type, which is useful too. But George elected two pretty progressive people with a real civil rights history. I think that was a very notable thing. I mentioned Biden and Harris taking office. Biden, whatever you think about him, is obviously cares about the country, is normal, is humane, is human, in a way that Trump wasn't, you know, having a black... These are our positive lists these days. Is normal. President is, is normal. normal. Is, I know it's a crazy thing to say. You know, Kamala Harris, you know, it is, it is a great achievement for the country to have a black female Indian American HBCU graduate as the president, as the vice president. That's notable to think about. I mentioned that, you know, I'm pretty progressive. I mentioned that Biden has been more progressive than I expected and actually sort of more more progressive than he's given credit for at times. I think particularly I, I'm interested by how they've in terms of picking the um, federal judges, how they've not only have they picked Muslims, African-Americans, African-American women, that's good, but also they, they picked public defenders, civil rights lawyers. They've got out of the sort of like, in the old days, both Democrats and Republicans only picked basically ex-prosecutors and corporate lawyers for judgeships. And I'm excited to see that's diversifying a little bit in professionalism in addition to um, race, gender, religion. I noted the establishment is sort of getting to the point where they're getting, you know, more aware, you know, where Tim's been for a while, that the the problem is the Republican Party. It's not tribalism or polarization. Those are problems. But more and more, the establishment is, you know, like Liz Cheney or Amy Klobuchar, people who are pretty centrist on policy are becoming more, or Liz Cheney's not centrist. People who are even sort of right wing on policy are becoming more aware of the anti-democratic radicalism in the Republican Party and adapting to that and being sort of serious about that. I mentioned we were seeing, you know, inflation is bad, but we are also seeing higher pay for workers and that's good. I mentioned sort of the rise of people like Cori Bush who are really challenging both Republicans and Democrats and the system overall. I mentioned getting out, you know, getting out of Afghanistan, ending all these drone wars. I think that's generally a good thing. Even if the withdrawal itself was not great, I think that the pullback from the forever war is good. Um, I mentioned that Andrew Cuomo, this is sort of a negative positive, but Andrew Cuomo, in my mind, was a really deplorable politician, and I'm glad he's gone. And then I mentioned some, I think we're getting more more voices and more writers telling unique stories about America's politics. And I mentioned Adam Harris, who wrote this great book called The State Must Provide, about how colleges you know, HBCUs have always been less funded than the sort of predominantly white colleges in states around the country. And he wrote a great book sort of explaining that and how we've always had, you know, sort of 
separate schools, but they've never been equal. And he sort of calls that in his book. I mentioned Clint Smith wrote a book called How the Word is Passed, where he went around the country to various Confederate monuments and museums and sort of told a story about how the the story of the Confederacy is being told, has been told, how that story is being told in a more updated way now. And then I mentioned a book written by Heather McGee called The Some of Us, which gets into some of our political divides about race and how in reality, in her view, addressing racial issues will also help us address a lot of underlining issues that are not necessarily about race. And I think that book was very profound and changed my thinking in a lot of ways. So having those new voices, I think if you think about the 1619 project, there's a lot of like, and it's not just Black, but there are a lot of particularly prominent Black people writing about politics and having the space to do that in a way I would not say was the case 10 or 20 years ago. Yeah, I have Clint's book sitting in my queue. I'm really I'm really excited to read that. Um, I'll, I'll look into those are some other good suggestions. I, I, I was glad you mentioned, uh, you know, because we here, um, obviously at the Bulwark, we're pretty critical of what was happening in Afghanistan, I think for good reasons, but I'm glad you mentioned the drone war element of this. I, I, um, I, I do think that, like, that has gotten lost and that the Democratic left like has not done a good job, maybe because they're so uncomfortable complimenting the Democratic right. foreign policy establishment. But there, it doesn't feel like there's anybody out there saying like, "Hey, look, there's this great thing that has been, you know, that we stopped doing, um, you know, that had been going on across three administrations." Uh, you know, I think if you ask your average person on the street who was, you know, less likely to participate in drone war, Trump or Biden, I think that you'd you'd be likely to hear a lot of people say Trump. Um, when when Trump had increased the, the the use of drone warfare from the Obama years, and, and Biden has almost has almost zeroed it out. Um, well, I, I I wanted I wanted to start on that on that positive note. I didn't agree with all those positive things, but you know, pretty good. Seven out of ten positive. I, I like that. Um, Which ones did you disagree with? I'm curious now. Well, I, I, I'm in retrospect, I guess in the biggest picture, I, I'm not sure that it was good that the Democrats won the runoff. And I think that it's creating a lot of problems for Joe Biden. Um, you know, oh, because right they have majorities, so they have to pass things, and they yeah. don't. And they don't really have a real majority. Okay, that yeah, I think sure. it's creating a lot of problems. I think have I think it. Are, think, it I was making a different point, which is Warn. You know, having something like Warnock be elected, I'm happy about, even if yes, I agree. With right. That, yeah, 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 and that's and that's true. And I think that obviously, I I will not. I'm not going to say that it was bad news that the that you know Georgia elected their first black man, their first Jewish man, <laughs> the, the first millennial to the Senate. Like that, that's all good. That's all progress. Um, but I think just in the big biggest political picture uh, it's created a lot of problems for biden um that he might not have had to deal with in, in our in our negative polarized times uh having a boogeyman like mitch standing in the way of mm-hmm. you know all the good things you wanted to do probably would have been helpful and I, I don't know i think on the judges obviously you know that progress would not have been made so that's something that is lost but i, I think that the big policy ticket policy items you know the COVID relief and the infrastructure you know, passed with large enough of the majority, still would have passed. Anyway, it's a, it's a, it's a counterfactual. Um, the Afghanistan stuff and the Cory Bush thing. I, I I'm with you in the sense that I I I think that it would be good for the Democrats to have more alternative voices challenging their kind of sclerotic establishment in Congress. I, I know that some of those voices aren't going to align with my politics, um, in particular, like Bush's. Um, but I, 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 fi- I, I found it a little bit frustrating. I, I don't, I don't know, you know, kind of what, you know, Bush has really gotten folks that would have been different, um, from, uh, you know, from what her, her predecessor, uh, her predecessor did in Missouri. And I, and I'm not seeing a lot of 
creative thinking among the Democrats on, you know, different types of candidates running, you know, in other places as well, right? In rural places. Uh, you know, I've, I always say, I think that people sometimes come to the board and say, oh, well, you just want a squishy centrist, you know, for never Trumper. And I was like, well, I don't know. The Democrats could probably run a squishy centrist never Trumper in Texas and do pretty well. But, but you know, a populist Democrat in some of these places in the upper Midwest, I think would be helpful. Uh, you know, I, I think that there are a lot of different strands of, of um, you know, ways that, ways that you could come at kind of reorganizing the Democratic establishment to more reflect its current base. And I, I, I think that like hanging their hat on Cori Bush is, is not really doing a lot of service. So I probably disagree with you pretty strongly here. Okay. I don't, obviously I don't think the Democrats should run Cori Bush in Missouri or America. So I think we agree there, but I do think, so I guess Missouri. I wrote a profile of Ayanna Presley a few weeks ago. Ayanna Presley replaced someone named Mike Capuano. They have yep. the exact same voting record as my guess, or Capuano would have had. Capuano was very progressive, et cetera, et cetera. But my guess is none of your listeners had ever heard of who he was. You know, and I think there's a lot of times where a more progressive person replaces a sort of anonymous member of the House. And so I don't think so. Ayanna Presley, I don't know if she's passed a ton of things, but I would say that she's been very heavy on this, like, forgive student debt issue, for example. And if you notice that Biden has not done the broad forgiveness student debt that she's been calling for, but they have sort of ramped up student debt. There's like, there's already a lot of existing programs on the books about student debt relief that really were not done. If you worked in a public service job, you're supposed to get your associate some student debt. If you like, you know, if you became a lawyer, but you worked in various public interests and things like that. So there are a lot of programs that were on the books on student debt that Obama didn't really push that hard. And then Trump basically blocked completely because Betsy DeVos didn't believe in those programs. So I do think Ayanna Presley being very prominent about this extreme proposal for debt relief ends up with Biden feeling like he has to do some of that. And I don't think Mike Capuano does that. Cori Bush probably got people who were going to be evicted two more weeks before the end. And she, she raised attention to the issue to where I think local governments felt like they had to step up on it. I think the new mayor of Boston is going to end up doing things that the previous person did not do. So I, I do think that these progressive, these sort of younger progressives do tend to sort of act a little more and sort of like raise different issues to the table. I'm not, again, I'm, this is like in places where it's a blue area and there's not a question of who's going to win the election. I think sometimes these people are a little bit more innovative and in, in their thinking than the sort of older people who, are, who they replace. Yeah. But I guess my question is why does this innovative thinking always have to come from like the educated elite progressive side of, of the caucus? Right. I mean, I, you know, I, I think the student does student Cory Bush elite. I don't, I, I sort of, I'm not sure that's true. Well, I mean, I, you know, I think that Ayanna Presley is representing, you know, a small slice of America, a small slice of the democratic electorate. And I, 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 I have nothing against, though, I have right? nothing against Ayanna Presley. I have nothing against Ayanna Presley, but I, but I, I think that like these challenges that there, there's kind of this accepted, um, you know, sort of wisdom uh, among a lot of you know folks on the coastal you know, kind of left that are like we need to sort of move you know the the direction towards you know where the Ayanna Presleys of the world want the party to move like but but meanwhile 
there are a lot of other like potential Democratic voters and potential ways to 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 shake up the party that that you know might come from from different different perspectives. And I think that like I, you know for example, I think the student loan issue is a perfect example of this. Shouldn't the Democrats also have somebody that is from a working class community, a working class community of color, even that says? you know, I, I worked my tail off and, you know, started this little business or I worked my tail off. I didn't go to, I didn't go to college. Like, why is my tax dollars going to pay for, you know, you know, student debt relief for people that went to Columbia, right? Like I, you know, or I, you know, worked hard to pay off my loans. I, I, I I worry that issues like that, that appeal very much to, you know, a, a certain segment of kind of the NPR democratic crowd, is is hurting them with other parts of the election. No, I'm not sure if this, I mean, Ayanna Presley doesn't have a BA. Did you know that? I did know that. So I guess I'm nervous about casting her as the person. Well, I, I, I guess we're not personally, sure, sure, sure. But, per, and I, but guess even if, if you, I guess if you actually went but to. That's like, the, that's like the popular, you know, I, I guess what I'm saying is she's reflecting the popular view among that crowd on the left. Do you disagree with that? I don't know that it, like, I know a lot of people who have a lot of college debt who don't actually have degrees even. So, Right. I, my guess, if you went to the black, if you went to the black area of most cities and asked them, I think a lot of people know a lot of people who are not rich who have a lot of college debt. I agree with you, Columbia graduates. I don't want to give them a lot of relief, but I don't think that's actually the issue of college. I mean, I guess I'm yeah. I guess I'm for help everybody as much as we can, whether they're college graduates or not college graduates. I assume Gary Bush would be for. You know, I assume the people she was trying to stop being evicted are probably not rich, and maybe a lot of them don't have college degrees. So I'm not, I guess I'm not sure. I guess I. So we're we're talking about. It might be worth separating here. I guess we're talking about. I, I guess I don't view the average black politician as speaking. Uh, I don't know that I would cast Cory Bush and Ayanna Presley in the thing you're talking about. I know what you're talking about. <laughs> okay, please. No, come on. Let's 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 explore because I, I think that there's a divide, right? I think that this is fair to say. Look, I think that there's I don't a think div- Clyburn is opposed to student debt relief. I'm not sure that's true. If you ask the mod if these sort of more moderate black members, I'm not sure that they're actually that different than the on I, I guess I maybe I'll check, but I don't know that Clyburn yeah, is more opposed to I think it's worth exploring. I think it's worth exploring the prior the prioritization, right? And it's like I guess my question is 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 Ayanna Presley more for college debt than giving working class people stuff, or does she know Joe Manchin is blocking? Like the the college debt thing is important because it's the, it's, we, we think Biden can do it by executive order. I think that's why people are pushing it in part, not just because Ayanna Presley thinks the college graduates need. Like I don't think she's against programs for poor black people. I'm pretty sure she's for them, right? Of course, of course, of course. I I, I well, you know, maybe this is a bad example coming into it. I just think that like it shows. I think that there are certain kind of pieties and certain kind of things that that are hot button issues for people. You know, in the progressive side, and I and I'm, I'm I really like want kind of explore this conversation on this podcast. I think a lot of people, you know, hear from us who have obviously come from a more conservative sure. background. But I, I get concerned that there is kind of a bubble where the prioritization is for what you know the most vocal, you know, 
folks on the left are calling for, right? And, and I think that you, know, like, you see this a lot of times in a student death conversation. You see it occasionally in the policing conversation. You see it sometimes in the climate conversation, right? Where all, all this stuff needs reform. All this stuff is important. But but the most, the most vocal folks are kind of representing the views of, you know, an educated class that's kind of separate from the work that the, the, the working class, you know, communities don't always share. And I think that you see this with, um, you know, I, I think we're, we're obviously talking about the black community here, but a lot of other, you know, uh, you've seen progress, a uh, concerning progress in 2020, uh, you know, in working class Latino communities, Vietnamese communities, and we could go down the list. Right. And, 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 and I, and I worry that like there is this focus on appealing to what, and, and obviously this isn't a straight line, right? Like there are working class people that want college debt relief. There are rich people that don't, right? You know, but, but, but appealing more to, you know, kind of the activist set, you know, at, at expense of, you know, what, what working class folks are, are, are actually agree looking here, for. Tim. Joe Biden is the president. Yep. Joe Biden is leading the Democratic Party. Nancy Pelosi is the speaker. Chuck Schumer, like the progressives have very little power. So the idea that they're sort of shaping the democratic message seems, at some point, like I think Jamel Bowie wrote about this, so did Asita from the New Republic, the moderates control, or whatever we call them, the mainstream Democrats control the party. Can they take some responsibility? Like <laughs> well, I, guess, I, mean, I guess my the point party. is... How much power does Jayapal really have? Well, I don't. Yeah, a lot. You no, know, she because, I mean, they held they held up the infrastructure bill for a few months. I, I guess what my question is: Why? Like, can they take some responsibilities for what? No, no. Biden wanted the Biden supported that. Like, that's like I don't think they would have done that if Bi- Biden wants the BBB to pass too. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think the Biden would have been happy to just sign the infrastructure bill at the beginning if nobody was giving any trouble. But that we, you know, we we've been around and around to bend on that. And I guess my point is like the student debt thing is is, is a prime example of this because it's like, I, does anybody really think that the president, you know, has the power to just like permanently wipe away student debt and that a six three conservative Supreme Court is not going to overturn that eventually? Like, no. Like, like this is the kind of thing that Congress needs to pass. It's a 50-50 Congress, you know, giving, granting people some relief during a, um, you know, during a pandemic is bad, is, is makes sense. Uh, but, you know, now we're to a point where I worry that Biden is in the sour spot on this issue where it's like, I, if I, if I end this emergency relief that was granted, you know, I'm going to get hit from the left. You know, wh- whereas if I continue it, I think that there are po- other political vulnerabilities in addition to legal and policy vulnerabilities. So, I, you know, when you say when are they going to take responsibility, it's like, well, what he's being put in between a rock and a hard place on this one. But he's the I mean, he's the leader of the party, so he should lead like the Jonathan Chait piece that the progressive groups are blocking. Like that was I mean, come on, like. Like, is, 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 is the leader of, like, Indivisible have the same power as, <laughs> like, come on. This is just such, like, I remember the 2019 and 2020 primary where Joe Biden told all the groups on the left, and don't care about you. He won. He like, won. The, these groups have been defangled. If he feels hostile to, hostage to them, 
I don't know what that political analysis is because he beat the groups. He showed they have no power. So I, I don't know that I don't think forward. he feels hostile to him. I, don't, I think that he's been. I think he's done a pretty decent job. I'm, I'm saying that as a commentator, well, I'm looking he can't at this do stuff because they they're gonna they're gonna whine, but they already whined. And he rolled right through them, right? Well, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think he's a comedy. I think he's done a good job, actually, of navigating, I agree with that, of navigating that. And I think that, to your point on your list, I think he's been more progressive than people said. I think there are a lot of areas where, I, you know, I wrote about this in my initial Red Dogs piece, right? Like, I think that, that progressives, you know, I, I think that looking at the coalition as it is, is is really important. Yeah. And and there are going to be certain issues, and, and I want to kind of use, use this transition to what, was, what happened in Virginia. Um there are going to be certain issues that 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 are, are going to create problems with this with this newer coalition that includes kind of more suburban voters and um, you know more college educated voters. I think that it shouldn't be a surprise that education is one of those issues that the, that the coalition is going to have some problems with. But I think that there are a lot of areas that uh, you know that the that the Democrats are going to be able to move to the left. And take actions in the way that Joe Biden has. I think with the infrastructure stuff, I think most of the things in the BBB, if they actually sold them, you know, universal pre-K, a lot of this stuff is broadly popular. Even some of the social stuff, uh, you know, talking about gun, there's nothing that can get through this Senate on guns that the new suburban voters that in this coalition aren't going to support, right? So I think that the Democrats, like the progressives, could get a lot of things that they wanted. If there was, you know, more of a recognition about about what this coalition looks like, like my frustration is that, you know, where are like, you know, I, I think that the 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 troublemakers in the center, like, are totally misaligned from where this coalition is. Like, right, you got Gottheimer, you know, and they're asking for like the salt reduction <laughs> getting right, fixed, right. And whereas I, I think that there is room for new uh, heterodox. Democrats to go out and and win in places like Orange County, win in places like you know Oklahoma City where they won in the wave, win in places like Charleston, beat Nancy Mace. You know if they're willing to, you know, uh, uh, go contra you know what the establishment Democratic thinking is on a few things in the way that the squad is, and you don't see that right. Like the only trouble, you know. So this is okay, why I, I think they like are seen as the troublemakers. I'm not trying to blame them. I'm just saying they're they're the only ones making making trouble. Right. Like there's right, so no. Yeah. So I guess what I was getting at with the student loan is like, I don't like I could see both sides of that argument, student loans on the politics and the policy side of it. So what I was trying to get at was more, I guess there are ter- there are times this year where I feel like Biden has been the coverage is Biden is squeezed between the left and the center. And to me, it's like most of the people I know who are Democrats, they look to Biden for leadership on something. If Biden said we should add Supreme Court judges, they'd be more open to that. If Biden said we shouldn't do that, they'd be like, if to me, it's like elites often set the policy for the people in their party. They, and so they have this power. So if Biden tomorrow said what you just said, Tim, which is that, look, I just genuinely do not think Columbia graduates deserve, you know, um, student debt relief when we have 70% of Americans do not have college degrees right. or adults don't have college degrees and we should focus on their needs. They tend to make less money. I think then you would get student debt relief. Would That would 
plunge student debt relief down to the 20s among <laughs> Democrats or in the 30s, 40s, let's say, 30s, let's say. And then he can sort of, I guess what I'm saying is often Biden's posture is there's a loud left, there's a loud moderate wing, there's a loud Joe Manchin wing. Let me sort of triangulate between them. And I sort of wonder at times if he sort of said, here's what I think. Like there were times in the summer where I couldn't tell is he for BBB some? Is he really for it? Is he mostly for it? And I just think that he people do look to him as the leader, and he I do want to keep saying he should lead. Yeah, I agree with that. And and I you know I, again, and I think that there is a way to bridge this. Yeah, I agree with you too. You know, but I hope that our friends, you know, you know, our Bulwark superfan Ron Klain and others that are listening to this, <laughs> like I think that there's a way to bridge this. Like I I think that there are a lot of you know progressive priorities that are broadly popular, yeah. right? Like that are not just in the polling, but like are broadly popular within this coalition that elected Joe Biden. Uh, and, and a lot of that stuff within, you know, within the BBB, you know, I yes. think that, you know, you talk about the, you know, prescription drug prices and you talk about the universal pre-K and uh, parent parental leave, right? Like this is all popular stuff. It should be popular with working class people. It should be popular with college educated suburban people. So run with it. Right, run with yes. it. Um, I, I totally, I totally agree with that criticism. Okay, I, I want to revisit. Kind of, it is kind of sort of related to all this, um, and I think w- w- where some of this tension lies. Obviously, it's hard to just avoid the fact that that like race is a predominant part of this discussion. And and when we last talked in April, I went back and re-listened to it. One of the interesting things during our exchange was I, I think that we were both working through and struggling with like. You know, obviously, there is a younger generation, a more progressive generation, a more multicultural generation that is pushing a lot of the awakening in this country. They're they're growing up in a country that's very different from the country that I even I grew up in, and and certainly folks older than me. But then I think that a lot of the what you saw during you know the Black Lives Matter protests after George Floyd, et cetera, was a much broader coalition, right? A, a lot of huge Black Lives Matter protests in Denver. I'll talk about what I know, right? You know, of, of community <laughs> does not have very many Black people, right? Like, you yeah. know, of, of folks that had voted for George Bush, probably, right? Like showing up at that, at, at those at those protests. Um, and, and so I, there was this kind of sense that there was this broader, I don't think there's a sense, it was a reality. There's this broader racial awakening going on in the country. What we had discussed was, was that a result of the changing country, the changing demographics, or was that a result really of Trump? And was, was the, was, you know, were all these people who are coming out to speak in solidarity with black lives, you know, re- was, was there a large percentage of them were, that were really also just, me- just like blown up over the fact that this buffoonish bigot, you know, had taken over their country. And this was kind of an outlet for expressing their anger over that. Um, and, 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 you know, I, I think we both kind of said at the time that that it seems like Trump has a lot to do with it. A year now after Trump being gone, I, I think m- even more so now. It look it, it seems to me that a lot of this stuff was wrapped up more in Trump than maybe people wanted, and that w- and that that with if if he that with him and not as much in the picture. You know, I think with the Virginia race as the prime example of this, you, you see a lot of sort of backsliding into old old ways. What, what's your take on, on that now, eight months from our last I, condo? Somebody on Twitter, and I can't remember who it was, and maybe, Tim, you could do this investigation for okay. me because I can't, probably can't do it, but I, at least in my neighborhood, a lot of the Black Lives Matter signs that came up in July 2020 are now down. Yeah, It would be useful to ask, and a Black person could not ask, but it would be useful for <laughs> okay. somebody to ask these people, like, 
what made you decide to take it down and why? Like, because I think there is something, and I'm not saying it's you're a bad person if you took your Black Lives Matter sign down, you know, but my sense is, yes, that Trump lose, after Trump lost, is my guess is you could probably pin that to win a lot of the people who put their Black Lives Matter sign up took it down, is my guess. I haven't done a study of this, obviously. So I think that is something there. I would separate out a little bit this going on here. So there's a lot of polling that shows support for the Black Lives Matter movement has gone down over the last year and a half. What you see in those polls, though, is Republican opposition has went way up. That's not surprising because I think, again, thinking about elites drive the public, the Republican Party sort of started mobilizing more aggressively against Black Lives Matter. They sort of, you know, basically argued Black Lives Matter was only about defund. And I don't I don't disagree. There's always people who support defund in Black Lives Matter. But Black Lives Matter and defund are not 100 percent the same thing. Sure. I think the Republicans have sort of mobilized against Black Lives Matter. But I think if you look at the numbers, most Democrats and a and about half in de- half of independents, about 90% of Democrats still support the Black Lives Matter movement. And so I don't see necessarily that that has sort of gone away. And I was talking to somebody last week about this. And part of what's happening is the energy that people put into protesting in 2017 and 20 to 2020 has, you know, the Democratic Party in some ways has said, we're going to try to address some of these issues through the governing process. So I think their BBB, the push on voting rights. So I think if you sort of were able to track, my guess is a lot of people who were on the streets last year are now calling their senator or emailing Joe Manchin's office, for as that may be. So I think some of that is going into activity. I'm not sure I necessarily feel that people have walked back their newfound progressivism on racial issues, those people who have moved in the first place. I'm not sure they've moved back. And we can talk about Virginia, but I want to stop there first. What do you think about what I just said? Yeah, I agree with all that. I I don't think that, look, I I always said I think that there were kind of two groups of uh, now we're just we're just talking about the white folks. <laughs> yes, that's I mean, it's right, obviously, right, right. yeah, obviously, but um, there, is, you know, there's no need for a racial awakening among Black America. Yeah. Okay, so we're just talking about the white folks who are participating in Black Lives Matter. I, I think that there was a group for whom, uh, you know, a confluence of events, the Trump election, um, George Floyd, you know, a series of other, you know, incidents with police. Um, new reading that they, you know, began to be doing. Um, uh, I think that there was a group of folks that, you know, really, you know, had a, a complete sea change in the way that they looked at, at race um, in this country. And, and, you know, a lot of stuff that they thought was in the past, they realized was actually still a present part of our story as far as racial animus is concerned. And I think that I do not think that you've seen a lot of those folks sliding back. I think that there was another segment though, of white America that is an important segment because I think that it overlapped with swing voters, right? I think it overlapped with people that voted for Biden. I think that's why it is relevant to what happened in Virginia that were sympathetic to, you know, this awakening. Uh, Maybe they put a Black Lives Matter sign in their lawn or maybe their teenager wanted them to, you know, and so that they did, right? Because they were genuinely supportive. The George Floyd thing seemed bad, right? The police thing, you know, thing broadly, you know, they weren't for defund, but broadly, you know, obviously nobody wants black young men and women gunned down and well, not nobody, but 
very, very, very few. You know, the, all of the folks we're talking about do not want black young men and women gunned down in the streets, you know, without any accountability. Right. Um, you know, they saw, you know, in their lives still other other kinds of racial discrimination that, that still persisted. Um, we're happy to, you know, have, you know, more black stories being told to their kids in schools, things of that nature. I think, though, some of those voters have, and they're not just voters, they're humans, are with Trump out, for some reason, the salience of it has dissipated. And I think that there are other things going on that make them nervous. Some of them, I think, are unfair, you know, like some of the CRT panic. Some of the stuff is maybe fair would be going so far, but I think reasonable, right? Like if you're their parents and they see some of the activities that are like, so there's some crazy stuff that's happened in some of the schools, like the race separating and like a really overwhelming focus on diversity and equity projects, you know, in a way that they think is maybe out of step with, with, with how, how much it should be. You know, maybe that's still latent racism. Right. But I, I think that, a feeling that you can't speak freely, right? Like I, I, I think that there, there are, uh, you know, as I talk to folks, you know, some of the stuff seems like it's like fake internet outrage by the anti PC warriors. Like I'm not talking about that shit, right? Like those people never were part of the racial awakening in the first place. <laughs> like any time that there's progress, right? There's going to be folks that there uh, that that are uneasy with the pace of it, and, and I think that with Trump out of the picture, we are, you know, you see that group as backsliding a little bit. Let me come back to Virginia and then come back to the other things. I think it was a little bit separate. So in my view, the Virginia results suggest a couple of things. One, I think the data shows there was a turnout differential, meaning that sort of more Trump voters turned out than Biden voters. Like, and that makes sense. People tend to turn out like the, the base. There was a base differential where the base of the Trump people turned out bigger. And that's not surprising. Often when your party's in power, people stay home. They get sort of comfortable in their ways, whatever. I, I guess I, my other question would be, though, I know the exit poll said education was a big issue. But that's because that's what Glenn was running on. So people tend to say what the candidate is running on is what they're voting on. I, I mean, my own theory is they're probably – I know Virginia a little bit because I lived in D.C. all that time. Yeah. My guess is there's a fair amount of people who were probably voted for McCain, voted for Romney – voted for Clinton, voted for Biden because they thought Trump was a crazy. And that the Democratic 2021 campaign was Glenn Youngkin is like Trump, which just isn't true. Yeah, and so I wonder right. if for the average like Romney, Clinton, Biden voter, those people might think of themselves as conservative a little bit anyway. They're looking for a way to come back to maybe what the, their team was. Glenn is sort of, I would argue, not you know, CRT at a side is not anything like Trump. And so I, that's kind of how I see it as like a normal Republican elected in Virginia doesn't tell me that much about education policy. It tells me more that if the Republicans can find Glens all over the country, they will do quite well. <laughs> you agree yeah. with me? I mean, those people, like a normal Republican can win a lot of places. I totally agree with that. And I think that for a lot of reasons that we've discussed ad nauseum here, like Glenn is very hard to replicate, Yes, you know, and um, yeah, very hard to re replicate in long primaries, particularly in Senate races. You know, you, you just, you just can watch the race to the bottom that's happening uh, everywhere. It was a great Olivia Newsy profile this week that I would recommend everybody read about Dr. Oz, but she talked about the potential, the Pennsylvania primary, and she has a, MAGA consultant saying to her that like in these Senate primaries, uh, the voters are demanding that you go full R word 
end. And that <laughs> is like basically sums up the situation. Um, and Glenn did not have to do that because it was a shorter time frame. It was a convention. Um, and, 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 you know, he had un, unlimited resources. Like there were a lot of things that worked in his favor that are not, that are hard to, hard to replicate. So I, I, I do, I do completely agree with that. And, and I think that the education thing is wrapped up in, right? Like this way, podcasts are nice for these kind of discussions. So it's so hard to disaggregate, right? You have, you have your critical race theory nonsense, you know, the shirtless dudes at the Loudoun County, you know, uh, uh, meetings, shouting down the teachers, being assholes in their MAGA hats like that. I, that's not interesting. Um, it's, it's part and parcel with, with the, you know, extremism on the right that we've seen over the last half decade. Um, then I think there's another category of people that were unhappy about the closures, right? And that is sort of this once, you know, hope God willing, um, you know, once in a lifetime, you know, sort of decision, uh, reasonable arguments on both sides. I think that there's good reason to believe in a few counties in, in Virginia, they over, overdid it on the, on the closures. What I'm interested in kind of disaggregating is that there is, I think, another group that Democrats need of people that the Democrats need right now with their current coalition that thought Trump was crazy, that is looking at what's happening. And they're like, you know, I'm not going to go shouting down any school board members over critical race theory. I'm not going to go on a TV ad and talk about how reading Tony Morrison made my kid uncomfortable. Like That's all (laughs) racist bullshit, right? right? What I do wonder, though, is why, like, when I go to my kid's website, for the local school and I, and only this is something that I've heard from friends, you know, all my friends are have kids just starting to go to schools. Now they're trying to pick schools. I'm starting to look into schools for Toulouse. Diversity is very important for me, obviously having a black daughter, but you go to the school's website and it's like, you know, the diversity program is on the main page. You know, here's our statement about, about BLM. And you're trying to find like, where's the curriculum on this website? Right. And you know, where the kids come home from school and they have these projects that are just, you know, for young kids, like very, very centering of race. And I, and I think that there are, that all this stuff got globbed up in the quote unquote schools issue in Virginia, you know, and, and like, that is the part that I think it's hardest to have a conversation about because everybody wants to make it about like the crazy assholes, right? Which who are like not that important as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I they're important in so, that they're scary, but they're not that important as far as, as the electorate is concerned. So I think I'm pretty sure in New York City, I'm not an education policy expert, but I'm pretty sure in New York City, de Blasio was proposing some kind of big change to the gifted and talented programs to make them, yes. to I think to reduce them overall is my impression. In the Eric Adams, who's black, who, you know, we can talk about his politics and they're more conservative than mine are. But I mean, but Eric Adams is coming in saying we want what our plan is to keep the programs as they are, but get more minorities into them as opposed to reducing the gifted and talented programs. So I think on those issues like that, where you're talking about, these are all Democrats we're talking about here. So I do think on the core, what is a, what is an equitable education system? What does an equitable America look like? Should we use the word equity or equality even? I do think on these issues, there is real divide. And I think it's worth being, and I think you're right. It's not, yes, there are people who are just don't want anybody to talk about race at all and who want any discussion of slavery to be banned. That's, That's all dumb. And I agree with that. But I do think there are real underlining issues here. And I'm not even sure the divide is between the, I agree with you that in terms of electoral politics, the swing voters matter here, but I think sort of like what does equity look like in our classrooms, in our workplaces is totally open. Like, you know, like when I was at 538, right after the protest, we had some diversity training that I thought was kind of 
you know, I don't want to trash them, but I thought, I don't know who demanded it or where it came from, but I didn't think it was all that helpful. I, I think that, so I think that, um, and I, that's not against 538 other, everybody I know who works sure. anywhere has had a diversity training they thought was not that helpful. So I don't mean to impugn 538. I've never been to a training of any type, diversity okay. or otherwise, that I found helpful, I don't think. All right, so so that's, like, that's there might be a, a certain type of type A person that just does not react well to being yes. trained as an adult at all. I would never say we've gone too far in talking about race. I don't think that's true at all. But I think we're sort of navigating. We're all in this new world. We're sort of. We're all sort of. Let's say sixty percent of the country, sort of most of the people that are Biden, and plus a few others, is sort of awakened to. There's a broader racial equality problem. Maybe I didn't know about it enough. I might include some black people here too. Like maybe we haven't done enough to fix it. And so, what does the solution look like? Like, you know, when we talk about getting rid of the or like minimizing the SAT, that's another issue where I think I understand the goal is to increase equity in college admissions. Is getting rid of the SAT the best way to do that? Or what are other ways? I think these are real live discussions. What do we do with these sort of fancy magnet schools, which tend to have very few black and Latino students and mainly have Asian and white students? Like, what do we do about that stuff? I think those are hard. And I don't necessarily know that, I mean, I guess the only problem being that Terry McAuliffe and Joe Biden are not running on changing magnet schools. But I guess most people who push for changing magnet schools are very liberal Democrats and therefore gets impugned on the Democratic Party. But I don't think Joe Biden is against gifted and talented programs, as far as I know. I've never heard him talk about it. It's not really a national issue, but a lot of these issues are being sort of worked out at the local level and they're complicated. And I don't blame the official Democratic Party for them because they're not the people really working on this stuff. But I know if you live in San Francisco or you live in Boston, these ultra-liberal cities are having these re- – even Louisville, we're having a debate about our magnet schools and whether they have equitable admissions or not. And I think those debates are worth having, and I, they are going to turn some people off, even some people who I might agree with on other issues. Yeah, and uh, and here is where the Democrats, just as a strategic point, could like turn some cultural issues on the other end. We talked, I talked about this in my podcast with Peter Hamby while Charlie was out last week. It's like, uh, you know, to your point, Democrat Joe Biden's getting blamed for shit that he doesn't have anything to do with in the yeah. Loudoun County School District, right? And because that's where all of our all of the media lives, and that's where all of these suburban voters that are now, you know, that have uh, that have become, you know, so so such important swing voters in our politics live. You know, meanwhile, like in Oklahoma, like they literally are banning books. You know, like there's like Oklahoma school districts that literally are banning books and that there are, you know, all these crazy districts in Florida where the, where DeSantis was banning, you know, communities that wanted to have their kids, you know, wearing masks or wanted to have certain mandates, you know, among teachers on the vaccine, uh, like banning them from being able to do that. Like instead of always getting like circling the drain, circling our belly button, you know, discussing the Loudoun County and San Francisco school boards, how can the Democrats kind of turn that and and make it more of an offensive issue for themselves? Your other article recently, which Perry, we agree on so much, and I'm and I'm just getting us into arguing territory today. I don't know what it is about me, Um, but uh, your is uh, is on uh, the dangers of performative centrism which I think is really good. It's worth everybody giving it a read. I read it twice to make sure I, I wasn't going to misconstrue your argument since, you know, I'm a, a centrist du jour. Um, <laughs> but I think that it's, I think that I'm glad you brought up Eric Adams because I think that he is a good example of what we were talking about earlier, which is 
I, I look at Eric Adams. He's not. He doesn't care about all my politics. Don't align with his personally, but but in interesting ways, you might even say performative ways. He rebuffed the kind of progressive orthodoxies within the party, while maintaining is is still pretty liberal guy. Obviously, he's been mayor of New York City, and that worked for him. Right. And I think that I wrote recently, I don't know if you read about being in West Virginia and talking to to to, to Trump mansion voters and and mansions performative centrism uh, is working for him. Right. So I guess my question to you is like, where is that line between when when Democratic candidates should be, you know, sort of separating themselves from the less popular parts of the agenda in the party and to, to help the broader good of electing more Democrats um, uh, or, you know, or when when is when does that become become harmful to the overall brand to the point so that the piece and maybe it failed to make this point the piece is actually about the media a lot you also wrote another piece about susan collins as kind of a model for centrism anyway that i, I thought paired with the performative centrism piece but that and so i'm, I'm kind of combining them too but anyway go ahead it was mainly about the sort of democracy issues like i feel like i criticized chuck todd in the piece and chuck todd i know and i used to work with him, he's a good person but it's sort of like where people ask I was, it was sort of a criticism of like both sides-ish kind of things where people are like, on the one hand, Republicans want to ban books. On the other hand, Democrats want to talk about race, which, you know, that kind of stuff. Like if you watch Chuck Todd's interview with Nicole Hannah-Jones, some of those questions were, were sort of framed in a, let me show you how neutral I am, as Got opposed it. to a framing of like, what are the actual issues at play? That's what I was, and I was critiquing Joe Manchin on the sort of voting rights issues, particularly is what I was critiquing him on. So I think that's, so what I might say, and I the piece failed to say this, is that I think like sort of perf- like a lot of elites, like law professors and so on, are like, let me show you how neutral I am to show to sort of a way to kind of get more to be shown how thoughtful I am. I, I think what I so I don't think that Eric Adams or Tim Miller or Joe Manchin are performing centrism. I think they are more centrist on policy. That's a different thing. Got it. And, and maybe the piece failed to say that. Like, I don't think Eric Adams is performing anything. He takes positions on issues to the right of many progressives. And he, you know, and that's okay. And I, yeah, like, I don't think Amy Klobuchar is a performative moderate. I think she's moderate. Right. You're talking more about, and, and I completely agree with this point, you know, this, you know, among the corporate class in yes. particular, right? Um, not just the media, right? But executive, right? Like you've, there, there's this need to kind of, you know, create a false balance, right? Um, in order to, you know, gain credibility, you know, and, and in a way, you know, that allows, you know, prides cover for a lot of the really pernicious anti-democratic and bigoted, you know, sort of elements that, that have arisen on the right. And, and so, and that is really more of your criticism than on say Joe Manchin from, for, for going a little bit overboard sometimes on his criticisms to the left. I think JVL called it hippie punching to get a little bit of credit. That that's you're, you'll allow, you'll allow a little bit of hippie punching if it allows a Democrat to win in West Virginia. What you don't like is when so there is somebody who should be a neutral authority, you know, tr- creating false balance. I'm getting at false equivalency more. Like to me, it's like what you do is you're very blunt about the Republicans are doing some racist things, some anti-democratic things, but you don't so probably to support don't support student loan forgiveness massively. That to me is a 
poli- like to me, a, a logical person looking at today's politics would say the Republicans are very radical on on Democrat dem- democracy and racism, and those are bad things. I don't have any problem with people having different views on tax policy. That's right. like I, I think it's worth distinguishing between. There's one box of issues where the Republicans are really bad and they need to be changed, and there's another box of issues where I think the Republicans are fine. And we've always disagreed about, you know, people. Mitt Romney opposes BBB pretty heavily. I don't think there's anything wrong with Mitt Romney. Of course he does. He's a Republican. Yeah, I mean, his he had, and he put forth a child tax credit option. Yeah, as well. he's also good at yeah. yeah, so uh, you know, he's he has issues. What um, I want to do some rapid fire politics stuff with you and just start with the Susan Collins. Oh, can I explain the Susan Collins idea a little bit? Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's start with Susan Collins and we'll do some rapid fire politics and get people into their uh, to their holiday. What um, To me, the interesting thing about your Susan Collins piece was Susan Collins, you may not like her, but but she's a good model for you know how you kind of maintain an independent brand without undermining the party's brand, right? Like she's separated from the party on Amy Coney Barrett and a couple of other, you know, issues, um, Obamacare. Um, but you know, you don't see her out there trashing the party. Um, like how, how, how did the, how can the Democrats, you know, come up with, with models like that? Um, because you do see, you also see the treatment of Susan Collins is different. You know, she's not vilified and, and, you know, on Fox news and such the way that the way that Manchin gets, you know, and, and democratic environs. I mean, how do you view Sherrod Brown and John Tester? To me, Sherrod Brown, John Tester, I'd say my governor, Andy Bashir, yeah. John Bell Edwards. I think you can find a lot of people who are Democrats who figure out ways to say, I'm a Montana Democrat, I'm a Louisiana Democrat, I who are not progressive, who don't are not broadcasting student loan debt. I guess to me, Abigail Spamberger's entire identity is I'm I'm not an AOC Democrat. And that's all she seems to say in public is that she's on. That's fine. But I don't feel like Susan Collins does that. That's what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. I guess my question then is like, when does, um, so Susan Collins is doing it on issues, right? And yes. so I think this is really the question more on the side. And it really kind of loops me back to my original discussion is that I, I, I agree with you. Why can't there be, you know, had had there be you could list in any number of issues that a, a Democrat from, you know, a state, a purple or red state could separate themselves from from the party on without you know, trying to completely undermine the party's brand is extreme. I mean, I think we just went through some of them. Te- schools, right, and like closures, right. I, I think right. that COVID has offered a number of examples. Look what Polis is doing in Colorado, right, yes. and saying, you know, the, Polis isn't attacking, mm-hmm. you know, Newsom, right, and saying that oh, right. like California's turning into China. You know, he's just <laughs> right. saying that, like I don't think that we need mass mandates here right. in our state. Like that's an area that I disagree on, right? Like I think that's a constructive way to do that. And I think that for some reason, the Democrats are not developing people who, who are doing that. I, I think you pointed to Tester, but I, to me, I think Tester seems like he's retiring to me. He's on the way out the door. I think Sherrod Brown is like the sole model of someone who um, is, you know, is, is, is creating some distance from the party and various you know, things on left issues and winning in, in right-wing states. And unfortunately, 
you know, I'm sure some listeners will say like, well, why are you criticizing the Democrats on this? Why are you so focused on them? Who are the Republican examples of this? And there aren't any, but the, because of the Senate, because of the way that the balance of power is, Republicans don't have to do this. I, you know, and they can get to where they are right now in the Senate with only carrying, you know, Susan Collins as being the only senator that's not from a red state. Democrats don't have that luxury. So, so they have to, you know, be more creative in their thinking and, the models right now of how to do that are, are kind of thin. So my old colleagues at 538, they do this thing called the Biden score, they, the Trump score. They tracked yeah. how often the member voted with the party. I'm pretty sure Manchin and Cinema have 100% ratings on their Biden score. That's an <laughs> odd thing to me. Like you, You're the person who worked on the Hill and I didn't. Or maybe, I don't know if you worked on the Hill. Uh, actually, yeah. but, um, I was a campaign guy. So to me, it's like, why doesn't Schumer have some votes where they like to me, why don't they have votes where that they know the vote will fail, that they allow the members who are more conservative to show themselves to be more conservative? Like, I don't have any problem with that. Like, why don't you have a student loan vote and see what happens? Like, I don't see because Susan Collins is allowed by McConnell on some level to vote against things that the party is for. And I don't know, and that and that does help her on the trail. And I'm not sure why Schumer can't have some losing votes. I agree with that, and especially votes to pressure Republicans in various yeah. ways. You know, I, I I've said this. I think that Democrats are always like, well, that we have these popular policy issues in the BBB. And, and and yet there's no pressure right now on Republicans to support this. Um, let's right. just go to West Virginia as an example. Shelley Moore Capito is, is a Republican counterpart to Manchin. Uh, she I felt a lot of pressure on Obamacare yes. because of the Medicaid expansion, yes. right? Uh, you know, she uh, ended up not voting for Obamacare, but worked on some of the fixes. Uh, you know, got herself in some bipartisan groups to you know that to try to you know focus just on the Medicaid expansion side of things because obviously so many people in poor West Virginia are on Medicaid, right? Th- there are equivalent issues to that in the BBB. Um, you know, insulin prices you know, parental leave, whatever it is that, that, that you could have votes on and, and they could go down, but, but you, now you're going on offense instead of just saying, Joe Manchin, why aren't you signing on with this? Um, he can say no if he wants, but you can go on offense and try to attack some of these Republicans in places like Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia, you know, where they have a more populist Wisconsin with Ron Johnson, you know, where, where there's a more working class, you know, um, uh, uh, voting block that they can get crossways with their senators, you know, particularly on the on more economic, you know, populist economic issues. You're, and we don't see that. Yes. So I guess to related to your question, you, yeah. you're, I guess you're hinting the Democrats do not allow enough diversity intellectually, right? Yeah, I, I don't do not allow. I don't think is the right word because Sorry. that would say that yeah, because I would say that that's top down. I just think that there's a culture right now within the party of um of of unanimity um you know of not wanting to you know offend you know kind of like whatever the predominant sensibility is people that are worried to step outside of that and in, in 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 certain directions on the right cuz you know in particular cuz they don't want to get the mansion cinema treatment um and so so the only diversity of thought is 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 coming from 
you know, um, from the progressive side. I guess that would be, I guess that. So I, I don't think that's like a top-down demand. I just think that that's like the culture of the way the party is right now. And I think a lot of that is really bottom-up, actually. People don't want to get all the mean tweets. Because I guess one solution that would be primaries, but I th- do. what do you think about, like, I think primaries are good, but it seems like when I follow the races, the Democrats are trying to, s- if you look at Pennsylvania, Fetterman and Connor Lamb, Malcolm Kenyatta, there's like yeah. three different people running on three different kinds of democratic messages and ideas. That's an interesting race. And I think it'd be useful to see who comes out of there and what they do. It seems like the Democratic Senate races are, though, are generally opposed to primaries. They're trying to like shut them all down. Like, do you think that's smart? Because I, I think primaries kind of allow this kind of diversity of thought, but I guess they do have the effect of you criticizing the other candidate in some way. What do you think about what, because the Democratic Senate, Democrats in general are discouraging primaries and Senate races, and I think that's a probably a weakness. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think Pennsylvania is this prime example of exactly what we've been talking about. Connor Lamb is, is a rare model who's trying to sort of do what, hey, what's a suburban center-left Democrat look like? Somebody who's against party orthodoxies on a few things, isn't poking the party in the eye. I think Fetterman is really interesting. You know, what is a more pop culturally conservative, populist, um, progressive candidate? Is that somebody that can can cut into the Trump base? I think he's really interesting. Uh, Kenyatta, obviously, um, you know, offering a different model, you know, maybe closer to what, what Stacey Abrams was trying to do in Georgia. So I, I think that I, I think that's super healthy and good. Um, I totally agree with that. Another thing I think is I, I just from a recruiting standpoint, I've been frustrated that, you know, if you're looking at, uh, you know, Tim Ryan is, I guess, an example of this in, in Ohio, but he's still a pretty down the line Democrat. Um, but, you know, who is somebody in in Texas, you know, or Missouri, you know, that is going to run as either you know, run as Joe Manchin, right? Like that, that's a model that works, you know, because you get a couple more Joe Manchins, that's one option. Or run as Fetterman. Uh, you know, can you cut into, I don't care, you know, or progressive, you know, version of Fetterman. Can you cut into the to the Trump base that way? Um, and, and, I, and I think that there's kind of this, that you're not seeing a lot of it. There are a few examples um, and, you know, a very, of different models. And I think that people are trying to work their way around it. Um, and, and I kind of want to get to get to the Stacey model to sort of close us out here. But um, but yeah, I, I think that's my main that's my main complaint. It's hard for me to imagine if you're a Democrat in Texas, yeah. you're super optimistic about Beto winning. I, yeah, I have probably. to imagine if you're a, even if you're a very progressive Democrat, I I don't know where the problem is. In some ways, the Democrats I know who live in red states, as I live in one, are very open to whatever wins. Let's try. I don't know that they yeah. would be a some. I mean, I'm not saying every one of them wants a Joe Manchin, but I think a lot of them, more than you would think, are or more than people would assume, are pretty open to can we just win already? And so I don't. I, I don't, totally agree with this. The Republican problem is their electorate won't let them allow. Right. You know, like, like Republicans can't put up a normal person. This is why it's this is so frustrating. You can sense the frustration in my voice. The Republicans can't put up a normal person in Colorado, right? Because the the right. remaining Colorado Republicans are insane. Okay. Right. So the Republican electorate won't let them do it. Um, the Democratic electorate will let them do it. It's yes. like the, the failure is of the of imagination in 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 in, fi- in finding and identifying their own types of heterodox Democrats that might appeal to various states, and this is something, by the way, that Democrats used to do really well. 
And so I, I, I don't, I, I don't have an answer for why. I can't get to why. Maybe you have an answer as to why they are, are, you know, that those candidates seem to be MIA, but they do. Because even Tim Ryan oddly has, I would argue, become more heterodox, right? I mean, become more true conventional, right? Yeah, conventional. I followed right? him for a while, and I feel like he's become. I'm not sure if I can name an issue where Tim Ryan and Stacey Abrams are that different right now. Can you? No, no. That's what and I'm that's saying. I mean, I guess, yeah, his, his his presentation is a little different, but I, it's sure. platform. He's white and he's older. You know, he's white. You know. He's white, right? And he's like dressing like yeah. a like a like a, yeah. like a working class guy. But it's like his is his platform any different than Hillary Clinton's? I don't I don't think so. Uh, Hillary Clinton lost in Ohio. Right. So like and I think that there again, I, I think there are different ways you can do it. You could be different in the way that Sherrod does in a more kind of progressive populist, I'm a working man sort of way, try to cleave off Trump voters. Or there's a you know, a way to, you know, sort of separate, you know, more in the middle and appeal to more more moderate voters. But but there's this is just ab- like there there just aren't a lot of examples. Now Stacy uh, if you have other thoughts on this, please chime in. But Stacy is is offering this model that doesn't work in Wisconsin because of the nature of the electorate. Uh, and the, the the demographics, but but Stacey Abrams is working on another an alternative model that's, that is interesting, um, which is uh, you know we're going to maximize the untapped voters, people that don't vote, and this is a registration turnout effort um, that that paid off obviously in Georgia to her credit, um, but uh, you know, has limitations like that is not going to work in Texas, right? Like the, uh, uh, <laughs> a greater percent of the non-voting electorate in Texas is more Republican than it is Democrat. So if you increase the number of people who are registered and voting, you know, that's liable to hurt you more than help you worked in Georgia, uh, because of the number of, you know, young people coming into the state. And then obviously because of the huge black demographic there, um, you know, is that something that's replicable elsewhere, or is this just a unique Georgia situation? And is this even workable in Georgia? Is she potentially running into a, 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 the buzzsaw of a second loss that's hard to come back from? I was going to say that first is that we sort of know that Virginia swung to the you know well until recently Virginia swung pretty democratic, but North Carolina didn't right uh, at all. Florida like so. Okay, so let's say for now that heavily his Latino states are different than heavily black states are different than Wisconsin. So these are all three different things here. Yeah. And so increasing turnout in a heavily black state will help more than in Wisconsin. I think that's obvious. But that's it. I'm not even sure we know that Georgia is one or that that necessarily worked perfectly because you still had a suburban white swing in Georgia too that helped a lot too so I'm I mean it's obviously better if you can increase the number of Democrats who vote in election without increasing the number of Republicans that do so but I think and that happened a little bit in 2018 I think but I think other than that that's really hard to do so I'm not sure we have any great models and I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure we have any great models. I'm not totally sure that Georgia was won that differently than Pennsylvania was in 2020 in the Democratic turnout was really high. Anti-Trump sentiment was really high. Yep. And I don't know how easily that is replicated in Wisconsin or Georgia or Texas or anywhere really. I just think we're like we're really sort of I think mobilization can help if you get more of your people and fewer of their people to come, but that's like complicated to do. 
it, you know, are, doesn't happen that the often. stakes are so high and i just I, yeah. I, this is, these are all known unknowns um and the stakes are so high you know because obviously uh this should go without saying but but the republican candidates in these races are also extreme i mean you have herschel walker yeah. in one state you got this crazy fucking josh mandel and you know dr oz and like i, I mean it's an ads an absolutely batshit and unfortunately there's this imbalance where where you know because of the nature of of the way that this, the Senate breakdown and the bias towards like rural white states in our system, like Republicans don't have to worry and fret over this as much. They can, they're going to win with crazy people in Ohio and Missouri in ways that Democrats can't. But but the stakes are so high because of that danger is so high, and, and and it's and it is hard to know. I just I wish we could just run a political science experiment where we ran Fetterman and can I move Abrams and replace her Kenyatta with her just to uh, just to balance the uh, name ID quotient and have Abrams and Lamb and Fetterman all run against you know who the Dina Powell's husband or whoever ends up winning the Pennsylvania primary and and see who does the best so we can just know for the future. I think that would that would be. That's something that I wish that we could do to be helpful. But I don't think these strategies are actually competing, I guess, in some ways. is that It's not clear to me, like what Stacey Abrams did well, okay, turnout and persuasion are not necessarily competing strategies. Like you could, like we keep talking about Eric Adams. There's a way where you can run a candidate of any race, really. Like black people are not all ultra liberal. So in, right. we sort of talk about this all the time. So in some ways... Focusing on turnout of young and people of color does not mean you have to be ultra progressive. Like in some ways, I wonder, and I think Stacy and Beto will try to do this. Is it's not clear to me that you you should. I think you should probably have a very large on the ground staff of people that focus on mobilization, and you get as many people as possible to the polls. But in terms of your message in public, which is going to reach swing voters, you can be pretty moderate there. And then you could probably be like Fetterman, who's very focused on like a marijuana legalization. There's a few issues that Democrats leave on the table because they think it's 1992 still. But I think if you're like marijuana legalization polls really well, I think. So I think there's a Fetterman is, is picked out a couple issues where the Democratic Party is just just like stuck in 90sville but where it seems liberal but in reality it's like a 70 30 issue so i think if you it's not going to be you couldn't run fetterman's sort of populism stacy's get out the vote and a sort of suburban buying strategy at the same time am i wrong maybe not yeah no it's funny you say that i was just in louisiana and they've got a, a kind of a connor lamish uh, type um, just uh, in his presentation named Luke Mixon that's running against John Kennedy down there and really smart guy veteran um, you know in a, in a sane world um, you know you would think a place like Louisiana would look at the take take a race like this seriously and not that he not that it's such an uphill battle but um, you know how do you do it in a red state like that I mean John Bell did it in a, in a, in a really off off year kind of in a lucky situation and is very culturally conservative but uh you know one of my friends who who went to a uh, 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 event for uh, the candidate told him it was like marijuana legalization. <laughs> this is popular. Go with her. And I think, I do think that's right. I mean, I think that I would love to see, you know, a candidate like that in Louisiana, like Luke Mixon say, I'm going to run a marijuana legalization. I'm going to be, you know, uh, a, a pro second amendment candidate. Um, and I'm also going to support, you know, some of these populist issues that the Republicans are standing in the way of, you know, as far as parental leave and, you know, things like that. And, and can't that, 
you know, can't we jumble that all together? And I'd love to see more creative thinking on that. Okay, we've gone way too long, but I, if, I, if we left without me just asking you for just, I want a 90-second hot take on what's going on with Kamala. Is the criticism of her fair? Um, should do people need to be worried? Just your current hot take on Kamala. That like like this is the McLaughlin group. Eleanor Clift, go. Kamala Harris. I mean, Kamala did not like I guess to me it's like a lot of this coverage is really about Kamala 2024. Do I think Kamala is doing a bad job at the ill-defined and rather unimportant job of being vice president, which is basically showing up and breathing each day? No. I don't she's think knocking Mike that out of the park. What you, you say? She's, I think she's and she's going abroad. She does all the sort of assisting the president stuff just fine. I think the subtext of all these stories, and if you read to the bottom, they often get at this: Would Kamala be a good twenty twenty four candidate? And the answer is we don't know, but we have a lot of reasons to think she wouldn't be great because she wasn't a great candidate in twenty twenty. So if people were honest about, I think part of the issue is that it's is. It's hard to dislodge Kamala as the sort of uh, incumbent, basically. But one way you can do that is say, see, Kamala is a bad vice president. So, of course, she couldn't be president. But in reality, Kamala is fine at at the dumbest job in the world. But is she going to be great as a 2024 candidate against Ron DeSantis with democracy on the line? I'm not sure about that. And nobody should be confident about that. And so to me, the solution, I know it's a weird thing to say, but if I feel like it's some interview if Kamala was allowed to say, look, people, if Joe doesn't run, we should have an open primary. I would like to run and I would like to win. And I think if she ran a field of 20 people and beat them all, then everybody should feel confident about her. I, I think that the worry that she's kind of the next Hillary Clinton, that she sort of owed the nomination, but nobody thinks she's a great candidate. I, I don't think that's unrealistic. I don't think it's a totally, I don't think it's an unhinged view. I don't think it's a sexist view or racist view. She wasn't a great candidate, but at the same time, I think Joe Biden is running. So I don't know if we need to have the 2024 primary next week about Kamala. <laughs> What do you think about what I just said? I have nothing to push back on that. I have absolutely, the subtext of these articles are all 2024. Nothing about her performance, and you gotta you gotta think that half of the uh, um, blind quotes are from people that work for other Democratic candidates that might want to run in 2024. <laughs> so that's all part of it too. So, um, well, uh, this has been really informative. We had we had we had ups and downs. We had laughs. We had <laughs> we had disagreements. Uh, this is exactly what people are looking for in a podcast. Is there anything else? Perry, that I missed that we wanted to that we wanted to cover before you know I let people off to their holiday week. Well, you mentioned this maybe not quick, but you mentioned that's okay. I've I got time if you do. Kind of the you know we talked about race at the beginning and the middle, and we'll you know, all sort of in there too is like so in my own thinking as a like I live in Louisville in a um, pretty we moved to an area that's fairly walkable. That was one thing I wanted. We moved from DC. So we ended up in a neighborhood that I think is like 90% white, let's say. And so a lot of times people ask me, where is our kid going to daycare? And I and we we have her going to one that's in the downtown part of the city, which is close to my wife's work, but also has more black people working there and more black kids there. And that's kind of my, one of my priorities. I want, you know, since we, 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 I want diversity for my kid in all kinds of ways. I think every kid needs that racial diversity. I'll be blunt about that. 
but I didn't pick the right neighborhood for that. So we're trying to address that in the school context. And it's been complicated because people in my neighborhood will ask, why don't you send your kid to daycare X, which is closer to our house? And a few of them, I will say, well, we want her to be around more black students. And they'll be like, our daycare has plenty of black people. And that's, and that's like, ah, no, I, we turned it. There were one or two, you know, so, but I, but it's really hard to, you know, I'm already in an area that's fairly democratic and fairly liberal. So it's really hard for me to tell people that I am very focused on having a lot of black people in my kids daycare without sort of impugning theirs. But I think it's logical that's a higher priority for me, but it's a complicated environment where we're in where everybody's trying to demonstrate their racial diversity and it's like hard to talk about even. All right, everybody who's out there walking their dog, listening to this podcast, um, we're giving you a couple extra blocks, all right? You're going to be able to walk <laughs> off those Sorry. Christmas cookies because we, we got we to gotta dig into this. this. I love this. Parent Corner. I alluded to this when you were talking about the school stuff, and I, I wanted to talk with you about it more, but we just, you know, we got so deep yeah, on politics. I'm glad you're, you're pulling it out of me um, as my um, auxiliary host for the show today. Uh, I, I Look, this is, I mean, this is consuming for me right now I mean, as a parent of two white parents and a black kid. So, you know, I, um, I, to me, it's, I feel like it's even particularly important that she is in a diverse school. Um, and that, you know, we're doing other activities, you know, to make sure that she's around other black kids, um, other kid, just, and, and just in general, you know, other kids from non kind of traditional families, et cetera. Um, uh, so it, it is top, it is top of mind for me. Um, and it's hard. It's just the, the, um, the, there is no, you know, kind of, um, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm looking for my white whale right of a school that like you know has diversity but is also you know good and you know also isn't like you know like we're centered to the prep school with all the rich kids right like like it's just it's it's challenging you know one that's in the in the neighborhood um and you know we live in a gentrifying neighborhood so it's like the daycare that Arca goes to um, like you can almost sort of see see it getting less diverse in, in, in the school pictures of each year as it goes by, right? <laughs> um, and so it's like, okay, well, um, we're part of that problem, I guess, to the extent that it's a problem, but we're part of that ch- challenge, I think maybe is a better word. Um, and and so for me, this is a totally a top of mind thing. Like when I'm looking at new schools for her, like the first thing I scroll to on great schools, you know, as I scroll, scroll down and I look to see like what is the demographic breakdown, right? Like what is the demographic? Because I'm not, I just, I can't, I'm not gonna, you know, you know, get into a situation where, you know, it's, um, you know, it's a ninety percent white school or whatever. Um, on the flip side to that, going back to our other convert, our conversation from earlier, you know. So whereas that's a top priority for me, I understand, and, and, and there are certain schools, to their credit, particularly in our area, in Oakland, super liberal area, you know, uh, I, I think that we're going to be hopefully lucky in finding a good school that is, you know, that, that at least somewhat meets all of these different criterion that you want. And, and they all want, you know, diversity in their schools, um, a lot of times for good reasons, sometimes for performative reasons. Um but you do understand then how if you're a, you know, to your saying, even even liberal, like you're a liberal white parents with a white kid and like you see so much focus put on that, you know, you're like, you know, it's hard to not say like, am I being slighted here? Right? Like that's just a natural human, I think, sense, right? Like is is like is my kid, you know, less 
you know, appealing or whatever, because, you know, they're white, right? Like, is there a <laughs> sense of, you know, is there a sense of harm being done to me? And, and a lot of people, I think, I think, look, can, are able to sort of, to, to, to take that into their brain and, and get past that first feeling and be like, okay, no, that is not something I need to worry about, right? Like, there, there's good reason for, like, we want opportunities to be given to kids in other communities. But then I think there are other folks that that, that, that gnaws at them. Right. And that that then does impact, you know, um, radicalization and, a bit, and, and and appeal to, um, you know, some of the more, more darker forces that are coming from the right. So I, 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 I think it's impossible to, to disaggregate this. And it's a really it's a really big challenge. And Oakland is like the most diverse place in America. And, and if it's hard for me to find a school that is both good quality and diverse here, you know, what chance does somebody have? you know, in Oklahoma city or not to pick on Oklahoma city, but you know, and in many other places in the country, it's tough. It's, um, I'm pretty optimistic about finding a school. I guess I was almost hinting at the conversation around that. I find okay. to be challenging itself. Like when I'm around other parents, like you don't want to, you I mean, you're, you're afraid you don't want the, you don't want the white parents to be like, like <laughs> you're reverse racist against me <laughs> because you don't want your kid to be uh, in my school. Yes, yes. In some ways, like sometimes I'll have to say, well, <laughs> we want to send our kid to school X. I don't, yeah, I don't want to impugn. Like I, there are certain preschools, elementary schools. I would not send my, I would be nervous about it because they're so white that I just, even, you know, they're progressives. But I don't necessarily want to, I don't, I, at times, am struggling with the language of how to talk about that yeah. in a way that doesn't make people... That's what I'm... Okay, like, well, I haven't thought about that. I haven't thought about that because I now... So this has been part of my ritual awakening is like both the yeah. Trump era and obviously adopting this adopting this beautiful girl is I like look back on my school, like, um, mm-hmm. which was super white. Um, because I lived in part is where you live. Yeah, right? like I lived in a super white community, and uh, and I went to a Catholic school, you know school that uh, had you know predominantly white parishioners uh, at the church, and so uh, you know I, I mean I don't think that this was intended. You know, it wasn't like a white nationalist school. It was just like my circumstances were like I lived in a very white community, um, and um, you know just didn't have a lot of exposure, you know to. I, I, not just black people, but just people of color generally. I mean, Jewish people, right? Like I just, I just didn't have a lot of, you know, exposure outside of like, kind of like the white Catholic, Catholic ethno culture. Um, and, and I, and you know, I, I went to great schools and I, you know, it turned out okay, obviously. So I, I don't look at back at that and think it's horrible, but I do look back and just think that, man, you know, the, like, I, I would just have appreciated so much the broad, like a broadening of my perspective uh, earlier you know, and I think that a big part of the broadening of my perspective actually began before Trump because I was gay and like came out of the closet and had to think about, um, you know, and, and had to kind of think with more empathy about like the experience of, you know, you know, the, the, the uh, discrimination to whatever if you want to call it that, that I faced, right. Or the, you know, um, challenges about coming out, like made me start to think differently about the challenges that other people faced. Right. And I think that had I not been gay and I just been like a straight white guy, like, I think I would have been like probably a douchebag all the way up until 2016. Like, like many of my friends who like kind of had a, had an awakening then, um, uh, just because uh, it's experience is so important. Right. And so I, to me, like my message to other folks is I can, in my situation, I think it's much easier why to, for folks to understand why I would want Toulouse to be in a, 
more diverse school. But I, I, you know, I think that talking to other to, to other white parents and white communities about like why this isn't just you know tokenism or tribalism or whatever, but it is about like about how important it is, you know, for a broadening of you know of 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 perspective, a broadening of life perspective, a understanding of of the kind of challenges and backgrounds um, that 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 you know of of you know people that you know, we're not part of the privileged class in this country. Um, and, you know, in your case, there's, there's obviously an added layer of that, of kind of, you know, wanting to be able to co-discuss that experience with other, you know, other kids who have a similar experience. Like, I, I think that is all really, I think most people completely get that. And, and in some ways, hopefully, it can be eye-opening, right? In the same way that, like, coming out of the closet was eye-opening for people, right? Because it, like, made them say, Oh man, I you know I hadn't thought about it like that, right? Like I thought about it more along the lines of like, you know, um, affirmative action, right? Like oh, we just got to hit our quota, right? And like to, and getting people to think about less like this is not about a quota. Like I'm just trying we're trying to reach a certain quota of people of different skin tones, right? Like it is about uh, you know like a greater understanding and empathy and um, and perspective. So last thought, and I tell you it goes up is that Heather McGee's book that I mentioned, The Sum of Us, she talks about, and I, what you're hinting at too, is that when we, we often think a good school means what are the test scores. And to me, right. I think if we redefine education is certainly about math and science, but it's also about the understanding the world, understanding the people around, understanding the people that are different than you. So to me, I wouldn't necessarily want to go to the worst school where this have my kid go to the school where the test scores are the worst, but I'd probably trade a few percentiles of test scores for a school that was like really meaningfully diverse because I think that's an education add too. And I think that's kind of what I tell people a lot is like education, you know, a good school should be one with good academics and good, a good culture. And that means a variety of things. Like I think my journalism has been better because I grew up in a, I wasn't rich growing up, but I went to Yale. So I met a lot of rich people. We were very religious growing up. So I know a lot about evangelicals. Cause my, you know, my family was in that, in that milieu. So I think that knowing a lot of people from different backgrounds will end up helping you in your work life and in your professional life and end up helping you in the same way that like going to an Ivy League school will. And so I think if people understand that more, that we're, yeah, exactly. We're not just talking about diversity for the count. It is actually a good, valuable, useful thing. Totally agree with that. And this is the frustrating part about the gentrification discussion. And this is, you know, there's this great, I wish I had it. Uh, We'll try to put it in the show notes. It's a good article about Oakland here. It came here about, you know, and this was, uh, I think, a white liberal of, you know, good faith that wanted her kids to go to the neighborhood school, right? And like a gentrifying neighborhood, not my neighborhood, but another one around here. And, and but it's like, to your point of, well, you don't want to send them to the worst school, right? And it's like, that, that that's what it was, right? Like her neighborhood school was horrible because all of the people that have moved in weren't sending their kids to the neighborhood school, right? Um, for that reason, and so there's a little bit of a chicken and egg element here, but I, I think that's part of the reason why, you know, it, it becomes so challenging to find a place that you're talking about that is, you know, that maybe doesn't have oh the most elite credentials or whatever, but you know, it's still a good school. It is still diverse. 
you know, it's a place where people can get that part of their education, you know, the, the, the broadening of the perspective part of their education. It's still a place where you can be a part of the actual community that you live in rather than like this elite bubble. Um, but, but I, there's this bifurcation that happens, right. Where like all of the, you know, if, if everyone that has the means, you know, doesn't want to send their kid to the neighborhood school, you know, you're, you're, you're just creating the same, you know, you're just exacerbating the problem. And I think that's like the hardest part of this, like the hardest nut of this to crack is like how to break that. And I, and I think that getting, you know, part to your point about the conversations, like having conversations where there's more awareness to the value of maybe sacrificing, you know, the, 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 per, the percentile on the test score for, you know, creating more of a communal, you know, community school environment that is, is part, but like that takes forever, you know, and it feels like DC has been gentrifying for two decades now. And like, that doesn't seem like that's happening in, in DC schools. Yeah. I mean, there are some, there's some, it's happening a little bit. It's having slow. In some ways, this is one of my plans for the, for this year is to write about, there are, diverse schools where this is working and this, I think we should highlight them. And that's sort of what I think that is happening in some ways. Anyway. Yeah. No. And um, because and how, right. Like how to replicate it. I think that'd be very valuable writing because I think that I I agree. I I don't want to make it say like there are none. What I I was trying to say is that it's challenging sometimes to Mm -hmm. find them and too often for too long, the time period, you know, hopefully, you know, should be able to be shrunk between, you know, how to kind of, get to the sort of the Goldilocks temperature on these sorts of things because even I'm just like based on this the neighborhood I live down in Oakland and the one I lived in DC like it just wasn't happening for the neighborhood public schools because of what the what a lot of the people who are moving into the communities were doing um anyway we could do a whole out we could do a whole parent corner <laughs> separate parent corner pod uh with me and perry coming to you guys soon um uh this has been maybe the longest of the charlie sykes bulwark podcast uh, i hope you guys enjoy i hope you guys enjoyed that um tomorrow we are going to have a um uh, a staff pod a kind of uh, you, you're going to hear all of your favorite bulwark people talk about what to expect for the new year and then charlie will be back in January. Uh, thank you all for being with us. Uh, thank you to Perry Bacon for doing it. And um, we will do this all over again. <laughs>